Toronto, right here at Talk Radio 77, WABC. Red Apple Media is proud to celebrate 100 years as one of America's most influential radio stations and New York's first. WABC. WLIRFM Hampton Bays. From around the world to around the block, this is a WABC 77 second news update. Good morning, I'm Bob Brown. Sadness for the family and fellow officers of NYPD officer Wilbert Mora, who died on Tuesday from his injuries when he and 22-year-old officer Jason Rivera was shot to death in Harlem Friday night by LaShawn McNeil. Police say the career criminal ambushed the officers. The 27-year-old Mora, one of three officers responding to a 911 call by the gunman's mother. Police say McNeil threw open a bedroom door and shot the officers as they walked down a narrow hall. A third officer shot McNeil. Police say a gunman opened fire hitting a man in the arm in the waiting room of Jacoby Hospital. Happened about noontime on Tuesday. Police say a gunman and a woman walked into the waiting room and opened fire, striking the 35-year-old victim. They both fled. Police believe Police, police believe it was a targeted shooting. An appeals judge has restored New York's mask mandate. The ruling comes a day after a lower court judge ruled that Governor Hochul's administration lacked the constitutional authority to order people to wear face coverings. Frank Barano and the other side of Midnight up next on 77 WABC. Before I cast the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center, clear skies tonight, bitterly cold, getting down into the teens, even colder in the northern spots and western suburbs. Wednesday, clear and cold, temperatures getting up to only 27 degrees. I'm Bob Brown. Remember, the news never stops at WABCRadio.com. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It is my great pleasure to be here. Always a real thrill to be able to talk to you, no matter the circumstance. But uh, it is certainly a real pleasure whenever I get to be joined for an entire hour by a fan favorite. And yes, a lot of people have been requesting him. It's been a couple of weeks since he's been uh, on the radio with me, but. The questions about what we're seeing in the night sky, the questions about what we're seeing in space, the questions about what the stars portend, not astrologically, but astronomically, they are lingering. And the go-to expert on all of those subjects is the man who I believe is not only incredibly well-informed, but probably the man with the best voice in all of radio, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer 
with a great deal of expertise, certainly a great deal of interest in both astronomy and space in general. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio, as always. 77 WABC, thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Now, I I think we have to probably b- begin with this James Webb Telescope. We've been sort of using you as our expert to give us play-by-play on what the James Webb Telescope offers in terms of promise. If people are just tuning in to us, if people haven't heard our previous conversations, what is this James Webb Telescope? Where is it going? Why is it such a big deal? And then whether people have been following us or not, tell us what images the James Webb Telescope has been delivering. Well, right now, Frank, we'll talk about the most technologically advanced machine that's probably been built by humans. It supersedes the Hubble Space Telescope by light years, no pun intended. But the object was launched on Christmas Day from French Guiana aboard a very large rocket called an Ariane 5. And that rocket is purposeful because not only was the James Webb Telescope size the issue to get it into a spacecraft that could get it out into space, it actually was launched in the proper configuration nearest toward the equator because this rocket launched again using the Earth's rotation speed, where it's much higher than other latitudes, let's say, in the north. So the spacecraft has been out there in space now for some 31 days, 17 hours, 45 minutes, and 23 seconds, and I'm checking that right off the NASA website that I'm going to encourage all the listeners to go to if they're concerned about this in greater detail, and I'm sure they are. It's jwst.nasa.gov. That's jwst.nasa.gov. One of the most technological spacecraft ever. It's moved out to a position now. It's 100% of where it's supposed to be at this balance point, we call it. Call it a Lagrange point. And it's one of these points, they call it L2, where the spacecraft needs to be far enough away from the Earth, the sun and the moon, so that it can conduct the kind of science that it needs. So, Frank, this spacecraft has been traveling over the last time we spoke. And for those people that are not able to have tuned in then, it's now, again, successfully at its Lagrange point. They just did the other day an L2, what they call it, insertion burn. So they have rocket motors on there to absolutely get it into this, what they call a halo orbit. It's not just going to sit there. It's going to actually orbit around a loop at that distance, and there's reasons for that. And the, simplicity, you know, the simple reasons for that are it needs to be in a position where the optics and the electronics can be on the dark side of the space. Mm. Figure, figure an object the size, let's say, a tennis court. On the sun side, the temperature right now is 129 degrees Fahrenheit. But on the dark side, which is only separated by about six feet of five layers of this like material, if you've ever seen an emergency blanket that you'd use when camping, like that little silver blanket, it's a material called Kapton. But on that cold side, Frank, it's 347 degrees below zero, and that's where the optics and the electronics need to operate because this is an infrared telescope, but it will not be giving us images, interestingly enough, until probably June or July. Now, uh, the, the where is the telescope right now in with respect to distance from the Earth? Where is it in the where in the galaxy? Not where in the world, but where in the galaxy is the James Webb Telescope? Very interesting question, because if you would go out in the nighttime sky and we can navigate and give all of those centers here on 77 WABC a good bit of information on that, if you were to look into the night sky and look at the constellation of Orion, which is actually high in the sky, if your skies are clear right now, maybe more toward the southern sky, there's a brilliant star in the left edge of Orion called Betelgeuse. 
And now, again, not having a telescope in hand here, but just describing in the generalist way, this object in space would be in a constellation called Monoceros, the unicorn. So just to the lower left of that bright star, Betelgeuse. So it's out there. But remember, it's only about a million miles away. And I say only. It's certainly no distance like billions of miles or not even light years. So in other words, it's a million. It's 907,000 530 miles, to be exact, right now. So it's far enough away where it needs to work. But if you looked at it or tried to find it from the ground, looking up in the sky, that's where it would be in the sky, on the sky chart, in, the, in what we call the constellations. All right, so we're not going to see images until June or July. How long is the James Webb telescope going to be in place up there in space? How long can we, how many weeks, months, years, can we expect it to be up there transmitting images? Well, NASA and scientists on the whole team are hoping that it's going to be 10 years plus to be able to do that. And I'm thinking so far, because everything's gone like clockwork, unlike the original launch of the Hubble Space Telescope when it had flawed optics, But we have to remember, there's a lot of things in here that maybe the public doesn't really, uh, or they weren't told, and not for any secret reason. There's a lot of artificial intelligence in this thing, too. So in other words, it has to be able to be able to sustain itself and do things and maneuver, because we simply can't, what, Frank, go out and do a service mission like they did with the Hubble and the astronauts that were brave enough to get out there and fix the bad optics. We're joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you have questions about anything happening in space or anything with respect to the stars or the night sky, give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Obviously, a lot of the big news has to do with the James Webb telescope. I'm do a survey. So if, have, until, so if you have questions about that, you can call in and uh, and give us a call about that. Now, there have been a couple of space disasters uh, of late, and uh, there are some things that we're, we're seeing and uh, some things that might be harbinger of other things to come. What are we seeing in terms of not such good news? Well, Frank, this is a very solemn week for people in the space industry, not just America, but around the world. And going back in our time capsule right here, we have actually this week two And they're pretty much on everybody's mind if they've followed space or even in the news. We go back to January the 27th of 1967, a very sad and tragic event when the Apollo 1 crew totally perished in a horrific fire that probably could have been prevented. The short story on that is three astronauts, Grissom, Chafee, and White. Gus Grissom probably would have been the first man on the moon in the pecking order as NASA had. But what happened on that day, they did a test where they were in full 100% oxygen, the environment. And the way the story goes, the short version is they were communicating with the capsule and there was a lot of problems Mm. with the communications. They couldn't hear each other on the microphones. And one of the astronauts in there, I'm not sure which one of the three, said something to this effect, hey, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk within 20 feet of each other? Well, something happened in there. And the general quick story is there was probably a frayed wire inside from the contractor that built that original capsule. And when you're in 100% oxygen and the pressures in there are just so great, they perished and burned alive, which is so sad. Mm. And another reason they couldn't get out is the doors that they had on there. It just wasn't one simple door to open. It was a complicated series of latches and hatches. And even if they could try to get out, it probably would have taken them such a long time. So we can memorialize those that perished. And also the one that's most prolific to most people out there is January the 28th of 1986, 
the shuttle Challenger disaster that so many of us remember, and then moving on to next month into early February, February 1st of 2003, the bad deorbit of shuttle Columbia in which the entire crew perished. So very sad in American space uh, science and American space exploration. We all know this, Frank, space is exciting. But the risks can be extremely high. Well, that's for sure. And the Challenger, I mean, look, the Columbia and the Challenger, both incredibly sad. But the Challenger was even more so because there was a school teacher on board and a lot of classrooms all around the country were watching it live Mm -hmm. as this explosion took place. Remind us, what exactly was the problem with the Challenger? It it, It was certainly not human error. I guess it was mechanical. Well, Frank, it gets into politics, but I'll go straight to the, que- the answer to the question. There was a problem with an O-ring or the O-rings that were on the solid rocket motors. They knew that day, and I say political because the temperatures were horrific. I mean, there was ice dripping off the launch pad. And all they had to do was to say, no, we're not going to go for launch today. But what happened is, and I don't know the backstory of this, but again, they wanted to get that baby off the ground. And they knew that they had the first teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe, on board. So they had a time schedule. And as we all know, the rocket launched some 73 seconds into the flight. Among thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that watched, we know that something happened where the O-ring was weakened and the fire from the solid rocket motors. Remember, those solid rocket motors are not what most people think. They were made up of material that was like the eraser material like you would see, not the rubber material, but solid like that. So there's really no way to shut off an SRB once it lights. It just has to burn. So it burned through one of the uh, O-rings. And that O-ring flame got into the large tank, which is filled with the fuel that makes the shuttle engines run on the, on the orbiter itself. So lo and behold, you had a fire, and that was horrible, and a disaster there. Some say that the spacecraft, actually, that they lived as they, you know, when, when the crew compartment separated, they're saying that they actually lived on the ride down, but the impact on the ocean was what separated them and, and killed them. Mm. Uh, uh, horrific. Absolutely horrific. You, you mentioned the disaster that took place on uh, January 27th with respect to Apollo 1. That was before the moon landing. That was before Americans or even world citizens were in the habit of going to space and in the habit of going to the moon. I would have thought that there would have been a serious movement in this country after a horrible space disaster in which uh, I guess it was three astronauts that were killed. I would have thought there would have been a movement to totally pull the plug on going to space. Let's not risk any more lives. Let's not risk any more disasters. Not Let's not spend any more money. Let's concentrate on the problems here on Earth. Why didn't Apollo 1 and the disaster of Apollo 1 results, and I'm certainly pleased that it didn't, but why didn't didn't it result in the end of the space program? Well, there was too many assets there, and obviously President Kennedy was the one who made the statement about doing this before the end of the decade and landing and returning a man you know, on the moon and back to the Earth safely. There was a lot of impetus in there, and you're right. There probably would have been, and there probably was in the halls of Congress, lots of congressmen and senators that said, no, this is not going to happen. But the powerful lobby and the space program, and thank goodness it continued, but the astronauts themselves wanted to see this continue. And they knew. I mean, each of those astronauts, like we're talking Grissom, Chafee, and White, they were like brothers. And they all stuck together because they realized, you know, this is one tight family. But the short answer is, obviously, history says that they continued, which is a good thing. But there were some forces to say to stop. 
And that was also the thing what happened after with the, with the shuttles. They were looking at maybe stopping them for good, but they continued because they had funds in the budget and they had to perfect the imperfections that they had in some of them. But the most sad of them, of, of the three, I think, I mean, all of them are sad, was the one that happened on the ground. And I remember going down to the Kennedy Space Center on one of the tours and being part of the media. I was asking them, the space people at NASA, if there was an opportunity to go beyond where the general public goes and not to take pictures or do a, you know, a documentary. But I was given permission with a few other people to go to the actual test stand where the memorial plaque is to the Apollo 1 astronauts. And all it is is a large concrete stand where the rocket sat. But that was one of the saddest days in America because that was big news in this country, as it should be, because we lost three American heroes that mm, week, too. That's for sure. Now, one of the people that uh, was, I don't want to say happy, but who readily stepped forward to take the blame for that Apollo 1 disaster was uh, James Webb. Now, we we all talk this week and in the last few months about the James Webb Space Telescope. Some people probably think it's named for the composer Jimmy Webb. Other people think it's probably named for the former U.S. Senator from Virginia, uh, Jim Webb. Who exactly was James Webb? What do we know about his life, his career? What was his big contribution to the space program? Well, he was one of the original administrators of NASA. And interestingly enough, Frank, as time went on, thank goodness the James Webb Telescope, as we're reporting here on, the, on your show live, is now in a very stable and, and very promising position. All is, all is well. But things were not all well with the funding of this particular spacecraft. It was supposed to be done a long time ago. There was battles for more funding from Congress. They got their money. There was projections in building this. There were delays. Then there were launch delays. Then there was a threat as I think I mentioned in previous shows, where there was some actual terrorist threats of trying to hijack the ship and hold that space telescope for ransom because it had a long ocean journey. But James Webb, one of the original administrators of NASA, but there was another controversy that came about where some people believed, and I'm not saying I believe it, I mean, I don't know the whole story, I'm just reporting what I have read, is that he was a misogynist and he had some issues that you know they didn't like in the modern day culture today. They wanted to see that they, you know, disqualify the name of James Webb for the telescope, mm. but they kept it. But he was one of the original administrators of NASA to hold the glue together, as we talked about before, to move forward and continue the space program after this horrible disaster with Apollo 1. Right. He was a pioneer in space exploration yes. and a pioneer in being canceled and targeted by the by the masses. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We are going to take your calls, your questions, your comments for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Let me begin with Al here in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. What do you want to say to Dr. Sky? Good morning, Frank. Dr. Sky is just about uh, one of your best Good morning. guests. Uh, agreed. Agreed. And very, very well, informative, always entertaining, and, you know, provides this, uh, a, a, a good snapshot of what's happening with space, but in a way that, you know, anybody can understand. Right. Even uh, yeah, dullards like me. Absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah, nice I have, of you, I have Al. questions. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been to, like, 49 states. The most stars I ever saw was in Yellowstone. It looked like the whole star... There were stars, but no sky. But then I heard that you can only see 6,000 stars at any given time. Right. So I was wondering, is that true? And, and, and then one other thing is, could you ever comment? I know that uh, over the course of the space program, I think like 19 astronauts have died between yes. America and Soviets. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the guy named Komarov, Vladimir Komarov? Yes, I have. 
And that was also could you another tell space. Frank space. and maybe uh, the, the audience, sure. uh, the, the story, like his last words and all that. And I'll get Absolutely. off. Thanks very much. No, no, no. Al, I appreciate the fine comments here. But to answer your questions, if you go out to places sure. like Yellowstone that you saw the sky, at oh, any one time, and yeah, then I saw the Northern Lights. Say, Astronomers say you probably, on a super dark, moonless night, can see about 6,000 stars. Trust me, I've been doing this a long time, and I've never counted that many, but I can tell you, you're a brother, because I look up at the sky, too, there, and in Arizona, and I say it's great. But the point is... Well, here in New York, only... you can't count 60. You know, I'll tell uh, you the truth. That's it. Oh, yeah, with the light pollution. It's but sad. Hey, we see how popular this is, Frank. Everybody loves the sky. But Absolutely. What I can tell you, Al, in a short answer here, is that... Any place that you look in the sky, obviously, you can see hundreds of stars in some semi-dark locations, but they're based on uh -huh. what they call ma magnitude. So the faintest star of that 6,000, people say the limiting uh, magnitude of a star that you could see with normal eyes, what's that, is plus six on the magnitude scale. Now, I don't have good eyes. I wear glasses. I could probably see on a dark night, even out in Arizona, maybe maybe plus four, which as you go down the number scale on the plus side, they get brighter. Then you get to zero, and then things go negative, and they get really bright. But it's interesting. I mean, it, just to see the nighttime sky. But Komarov, the person that we're talking about here, Frank, and Al, oh, is, real one sad. The, is one of the Soviet cosmonauts. His reentry into the atmosphere was horrible because his spacecraft literally just came crashing through the atmosphere. And to keep it, you know, respectful to and what And he knew it the whole time ahead of time. Absolutely. He knew he was probably going to die, and more than like 80%. But he came and he cursed the at them. He says, you're killing me, and, you know, oh, I'm burning yeah. up now. And he oh, cursed yeah. and cursed. The, the reentry was wrong. The angle of attack coming in was wrong. So, sadly, not only the United States, but we've lost a lot of Soviet uh, cosmonauts and others. And one of the most horrific ones, if I can just mention this quickly, Frank, is that the Soviet Union tried to build a rocket bigger than the Saturn V, and they mm. succeeded. It was called the N-1. But look it up, folks, on, on the, you know, Google. The N-1 like rocket. Oh, it was monstrous, but it had the weirdest thing. It had a bunch of tiny engines, something like what Musk is doing on his big you know, heavy lift rockets. But simply what happened to cut to the chase is that their director of their space program and a whole bunch of uh, Soviet you know, authorities in space, they witnessed the launch. It exploded, and it killed so many of their team. And that's probably one of the reasons why they gave up on the moon mission, but it was a gigantic disaster mm. and a most horrific explosion. So, Al, I hope that answers some of the uh, questions. Absolutely. Have. I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about that. It's an interesting chapter in the history of space exploration. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Steve Cates. Does a white dwarf have sunspots? Probably not. And it's interesting just to define, Bill, good morning, what this particular type of star is. When we say a white dwarf, the best example I can give you, both Frank and, and Bill, is if you look at the star Sirius in the sky, which is the brightest star in the sky, and if your skies in New York are clear, it's probably high up into the southern sky. You can't miss it. But it has a tiny little star called the Pup, which is a white dwarf. So it's more likely that the white dwarfs are not going to have sunspots because they're a different type of chemical or chain reaction that's taking place on these particular stars. What they are is super compressed material. So if you took the old analogy, if you took a teaspoon of a white dwarf star material, it probably would weigh as much as an aircraft carrier. And more than likely, they probably don't have sunspots or star spots, but they do have something else, Bill, that's really strange. A lot of these stars and neutron stars have what they call star quakes. And what the heck would that be? Not going to have some. So, Al, I hope that answers.
yeah, they wouldn't have a sunspot, but they would have star quakes because of the instability of the surface of those stars. They're just super compressed material. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a break in just a moment. We'll continue with your questions, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Frank Morano here with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. A, if you want to learn more about his work and monitor some of the writings that um, that he's made on various subjects related to space, the stars, uh, so on and so forth, you can go to ktar.com. A ton of great stuff on there. I steal from it regularly. But for those of us that have to live on Earth, we have to deal with the very real prospect of inflation. Uh, inflation is inflation is something that is here, and it appears to be getting worse. We're now at the worst level that we've seen in 40 years. And uh, if you look at the supply chain problems, if you look at the problems with debt, if you look at the problems that we're experiencing with um, I, you know, I don't know, uh, people not being able to fill the jobs that they have in terms of uh, opening. There are a lot of soft spots in the economy. That's to say nothing of the stock market. Well, if you look at the last time the stock market was trending in a downward direction, look at 2008. When the stock market collapsed back then, Americans lost their retirement, but not those that were invested in gold. Those that were invested in gold saw big gains and avoided the financial carnage. So if your money is sitting in a traditional retirement account, it's getting eaten away right under your nose. Gold and precious metals can offer a hedge against inflation and protect your retirement. That's why gold should really be a part of every wise investor's portfolio. And Legacy is the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or you can visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. You go to that website, you can request some information from free, and they're going to ask you where you heard it. Tell them you heard about it from me, Frank Moreno. WABC. Paid non attorney spokesperson. RDP Law Group with principal office in Washington, D.C. is responsible for the content of this ad. If you or a loved one is using or used a sleep device, listen closely. Philips brand CPAP, BiPAP, and APAP breathing sleep devices may cause respiratory failure, kidney, lung, liver injuries, blood, lymph node, or thyroid cancer. That's right. These machines have been recalled due to the toxic foam in these devices breaking down into black particles and gas that can be inhaled or swallowed by a CPAP user. Call 800-660-2734 now. As you may be entitled to significant financial compensation. Call our special toll-free number now to see if you qualify. If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with lung, kidney, or liver cancer, call 800-660-2734 now. The call is free and phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-660-2734. If you or a loved one used a Philips CPAP device, you may be entitled to significant financial compensation. Call 800-660-2734. 800-660-2734. 800-660-2734. Pulvers, Pulvers, and Thompson LLP is a client-centric, results-driven law firm with a focus on personal injury representation. Since 1940, they've been serving Greater New York with a strong record of success protecting their interests. They're confident that they can help you pursue the justice and compensation you deserve after a serious injury. Call 212 212- 
212-355-8000 for a free consultation. That's 212-355-8000. Go to pulverstompson.com. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Coming up at 5 a.m. on the 77 WABC Early News. I'm Lydia Serrani, and I spoke to Miranda Devine. She says what is going on with President Biden is completely different than the contentious relationship President Trump had with the media. And wait till you hear how she describes the president. He has always been a nasty, vituperative, thin-skinned person who has lashed out at anybody who dares challenge him. The WABC Early News, 5 a.m. weekday mornings on 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77. WABC. You're hearing things You're This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by one of our most popular guests, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, broadcasts on, on a whole bunch of issues, but we, in this capacity, use him as an edutainer who happens to know a great deal about astronomy and space. You can learn more about him and read his blog by going to ktar.com. And Steve, uh, you actually know some things about what's happening on Earth as well. I was listening to the Cats Roundtable uh, either last Sunday or the previous Sunday, and and you were um, incredibly informative on what happened with this volcano explosion, this Hungatanga volcano explosion. What exactly do we know about this volcano explosion? Why is this so unique, something like this? Well, Frank, it's a short story because, well, it's actually a long story. This is a particular undersea submarine volcano. What's that? You know, I thought when I heard submarine, I'm looking for something like the sea view from, you know, way, way back in the 1960s show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. But it's a giant volcano called Honga Tonga in the area of the island nation of Tonga that's been venting off material and gas for quite a while, a number of years. But lo and behold, on January the 15th, out of the blue, the relative, I mean, the, the, the natives in Tonga and other islands witnessed this most horrific explosion. What happened? It really blew. A satellite in space, a couple of them actually, one of our GOES weather satellites and a Japanese satellite actually caught the explosion. Did, did you ever see that image? Uh, I did, yeah. It was uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Right. So you see this thing erupting from the ocean, and then you see this thing called gravity waves. You see this ripple. But here's the most amazing thing about this. The sound of this explosion was heard all the way in Australia. That's far. That's over 1,000 or more miles easily. That's not the, 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 you know, the best of it. It was actually heard in Alaska, and it sent out a tsunami that had heights. I don't know what the heights were by the uh, Tonga area. They were probably pretty high, maybe over 10 or 11 feet of water. But we know that in California and Alaska, there were actual residual t- you know, tsunamis witnessed. And I think there was a couple of boats that were capsized in one of the bays in California. And sadly, a couple of people perished and drowned in vehicles when the tsunami of about six feet crashed into Chile along the, along the coast. But this is interesting, Frank, because what's happened with this, astronomers up on one of the big observatories in, in Hawaii, Mauna Kea, 
they actually observe what they call gravity waves, these clouds and ripples. This is such an explosion that it literally kind of went around the world. But what's unusual is that earthquakes are usually the thing that brings about tsunamis and not volcanoes. But I got a better one about this uh, in, entire event. Let's go back to August 27th of 1883. Why? Because that's the story of the Krakatoa explosion. I wasn't there. You weren't there. The listeners weren't there. But allegedly, a 100-foot tsunami wave came out of Krakatoa, and it put up billions of tons of ash, sulfuric uh, dust, and all kinds of things, rain, acid rain. It actually lowered the temperatures on the earth for a number of years. They had red sunsets for quite a while. But here's something interesting. It's been reported from Krakatoa that sailors on a ship 40 miles away had their eardrums blown out by an incredible blast in the decibel scale. Wow. Closer, they registered this. I don't know how they did it in those days, but this is what I'm, my research tells me, that there were decibels over 300 decibels. Now, a jet engine is probably up in the, what, 140s, 150s, maybe even higher. A 300-decibel blast. But what it reminded me of, and this is the most, like, you know, kind of a, you link the thing together. When I saw that explosion, didn't it look, Frank, like an asteroidal impact into the ocean? And that in itself is kind of a bellwether of mm. what might be if we had a small asteroid, maybe upwards of, I'm just guessing here, maybe a couple of hundred feet, and maybe a smaller one than that would probably do that kind of same damage. But God help us if we had one of those kilometer-sized ones, which did the dinosaur extinction. Well, since you mentioned the possibility of an asteroid, last I believe it was last right. Tuesday, there was a skyscraper-sized asteroid that passed the Earth. It got a little too close for my comfort. I can't speak for anybody else. <laughs> right. w yeah. What's happening right now with asteroids? I've told you I remain deeply cynical that uh, if there was an asteroid that was hurtling towards the Earth, that we would ever get told the truth by the authorities that are in a position to detect it and, and tell us about it. But what are we seeing right now in terms of asteroid activity in our area? Well, I would go along what you just said and second the nomination, that I think we'd probably be told, well, maybe not at all, as you were saying. But here's something interesting. The asteroid that passed us a few days, a week ago or so, was over 3,000 feet diameter. Now, that's large for an asteroid that comes near the Earth. They're called mm. near-Earth asteroids. Well, that one passed us by a little over a million and a half miles. That's about where the James Webb Telescope is. And let's hope it doesn't get clipped by something out there that far away. But, Frank, asteroids, these little pesky rocks that are smaller, they're so interesting. And I wanted to report this to you and the, and the audience, what I call this amazing thing. Let's say you're in a spacecraft and you're flying out there into space. Astronomers have said that these asteroids have spin rates. In other words, even these little ones, up to 30 feet, maybe even larger, even smaller, they spin like a top. Well, up till now, the fastest spinning asteroid was one called 2022 AB, letter AB. Its spin rate, Frank, was three minutes. So if you sat there looking out the window of your spacecraft, eh, you could sit there and your stopwatch and you see the thing slowly turn. And that was the record. But just recently, astronomers said that an asteroid known as 2017 QG18, I don't make this stuff up, 32 feet in diameter now has the record. And Frank, drum roll, please. Here's <laughs> their record of speed. How about 24 seconds? Wow. Can you imagine the little thing spinning? So why do these things spin? I mean, there's no real reason that we could say there's not a motor in there, obviously. You know, we're not that simplified. 
you know, that's it takes a little bit more. So really nobody understands why these things have a spin rate and something that small, well, 32 feet, I wouldn't want that hitting my house, <laughs> nor would you. <laughs> Excuse me. So 24 seconds is one heck of a rotation rate. That's pretty quick. That's for sure. 800-848-WABC. We're going to take your questions for Steve Kate throughout the next uh, 25 minutes or so, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Let me begin with uh, Ken in Madison, Wisconsin. Hello there, Ken. How are you tonight? Great. Good morning, Ken. I'm fine. How are you? I have a question about the late astronaut Sally Ride. I met her once, but I've heard a story that she was the only working astronaut that agreed with the engineer who was campaigning not to launch the Challenger. Is that correct? Frank, I really don't know that. And when I'm always honest with this audience, I don't know that. But I would imagine, you know, having talked to people like Lynn Scheer, who was of ABC News, who I believe had a very interesting book and, and wrote so much about Sally Ride, I would imagine that somehow that story makes sense to me because she was a very brilliant woman. And, and not just the fact that she was our first, you know, female in space as an astronaut. But I think there was a lot of warnings uh, hmm. to go down and up the food chain that talked about not doing that on that day. And I think many of the astronauts, uh, their decision was not respected because obviously the launch took place. So it's very sad. It's more than likely that I do believe that she did that, but I don't know for absolute certain. Richard is in Rockland County. Hello there, Richard. Hi, Frank. Um, Morning, Richard. Uh, a few, yes. A few days ago, uh, maybe a week ago, an asteroid... Uh, Passed by Venus. Uh, am I correct in that assumption? No, it's an actual it's a comet. A comet we were talking about, Richard, okay. was Comet Comet Leonard, and it yeah, passed yes, the planet Venus back on December the 18th, and it passed it within. And I, and I hope I'm accurate on this. I have to research it even more. But we talked about it, Frank. It passed it, I think, by a little over a million or two million miles, which is a landmark passing of a comet toward any of the major planets. The only one, Richard, that was actually closer, and people can look this up, in the 1700s, there was a comet called Comet Lexel, L-E-X-E-L or L-E-X-E-L-L, I'm not sure. But that comet passed within a million or so miles of the Earth, so that was one of the all-time records for the Earth. But, Richard, it was more likely Comet Leonard that you're referring to. 800, uh, Richard actually uh, hung up there, but 800-848-WABC. Chris is on Staten Island. Hello there, Chris. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, for years, I, I would look at the numbers of the launch vehicles, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the rockets, Saturn yes. and Delta. And I, it always baffled me that the, the vehicle that could put up the largest payload was the space shuttle. And given, you know, you have to get the space shuttle up there itself, let alone this huge payload, I never understood why the, uh, the space shuttle could put up such large payloads. Well, the space shuttle, the space shuttle, Chris, had a large bay, obviously, which you could open up. But right. the answer that I'm going to give you, that's even, I think, more goes. It goes more to the science of the whole thing. The National Reconnaissance Orbit and the NSA, the National Security Agency, launched and still do have launches of these so-called secret satellites that go up and spy satellites. But they used the rocket, which was the Titan IV, which was an incredible rocket. It looked like it had, you know, one main rocket and had two big rockets on the side. But I believe they used those because you had even heavier, heavier weights than what you'd probably be able to put inside the payload of the uh, space shuttle. But let's not discount, uh, Chris, that the space shuttle did also launch another type of spy satellites. And some of those missions, gentlemen, Frank and Chris, were actually so classified that if you look them mm. up in the book, 
you'll find out that uh, there's not a lot published about some of those STS missions. So the, the honest, you know, the, the final answer that I'll give here is that you look at the shuttle, it had the, probably the largest volume area that you could put and deploy something, but maybe not necessarily the heaviest. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Steve, a lot of people have yeah. uh, dusted off their old telescopes listening to our conversations. Mm-hmm. Others like me have purchased binoculars so that they can uh, yes. stare at the uh, celestial objects in the sky that you're describing. What's out there in the sky now for the people with the naked eye, people with binoculars, people with the telescope? Anything out there either right at this very moment or in the near future that people oh, yeah. can look forward to seeing that's pretty interesting? Well, my eye is peeled on uh, the the national weather map here, and I just see, and I hope I'm accurate because I'm not there right there with you personally, the weather in the New York area is probably clear enough, let's hope, that the moon rose at 121 this morning. So in the southeast, east-southeast, that moon, if obviously people can see it, don't do this if you're driving. But there's a last quarter moon in the sky, which is quite spectacular. Now, you just talked about binoculars. That's a great opportunity to take those binoculars and just look at the moon because it's half illuminated. And I love this because when we do our Dr. Sky programs with the telescopes and the public, we show them the moon at its best. So it's best to see the moon when it's first or last quarter or crescent because the shadow relief is there. So the moon will be in the sky. That'll be something interesting to see as we move right now in this so-called live sky. But here's two things that people can watch. On the evening of January the 28th, which I believe is Friday, the Chinese space station known as the Tiangong, which has three Tikonauts, there's one woman and two men up there, it will pass over the New York listening area in the East Coast, pretty much New York, this calculation is for 6.36 p.m. So 6.36 p.m., if your skies are clear, look some 50-ish degrees to the south-southeast, and you'll see this little object. It'll be bright enough with the naked eye if you're not, you know, in Times Square. And you'll see this little thing moving across the sky. That's the Tiangong. It's about the size of a school bus. And it's going to grow because the Chinese are going to build more to it to make it, you know, a bigger space station, maybe not as big as the ISS. And if you miss that, January 30th, which is an important day, Frank, because that's my birthday, and we have at 6.13 in the evening on January the 13th, that Tiangong gets a little bit brighter. So we were talking before with the gentleman about magnitudes and how many stars you can see. This one's plus one which means it's easy to see in a relatively dark sky with the naked eye. It'll be 76 degrees arcing over to the south-southeast. So if you see this little dot moving across the sky, just know that there's three uh, people on board, and they're trying to do some science up there. But other than that, you look into the west, the only major planet in the southwest at sunset is the planet Jupiter. And we also have to tell people, Frank, that there's some amazing volcanic sunsets that are being seen all around the world. So this is a beautiful beautiful thing. Early morning or after the sun goes down, 20 or 15, 20 minutes after, you may get to see with clear, clear skies some beautiful orange and purple skies with these rays that come up from the horizon. They're called crepuscular rays. They look like bright beams of light, you know, like you would fire up lights below the horizon. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so your birthday is January 30th. I'm going to have yes, to sir. get my card in the mail so it gets to you in time. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully you'll use your wish as well. Uh, let me ask you about this. This is a big, There's a big article in the U.S. Sun. Uh, Drudge Report has linked to it near the top of the page that a giant Elon Musk rocket is about to crash into the moon. This is the headline. 
after seven years of chaos. What's the story here? We've covered SpaceX and Elon Musk's adventures as a spacefarer. What is this rocket? Uh, Why is it about to crash into the moon? And what are the potential dangers of this situation here, if any? Well, it's an it's an interesting story, Frank. When when Elon Musk was in his younger days, going back that far, their rocket scientists were still trying to perfect everything that they have really gotten really good now at. So they launched this rocket, which had some sort of a little space probe on there. I think it was a little observatory of sorts, nothing like the James Webb. But its intended purpose was to get it out, maybe out somewhere like where the James Webb is, you know, out and away from the Earth, far enough away where it can do its science and nobody can bother it. There's no other satellites around. The second stage of that rocket had an issue. And what it was supposed to do was loop back to the Earth and either burn up in the atmosphere. This is the days before his soft landers. So that object has been going around the sun in this strange, or excuse me, the Earth in this rather strange loopy orbit. So scientists are telling us that the booster rocket is unintentionally going to hit the moon probably sometime around March. Now, that's probably one of the first unintentional objects that slammed into the moon. A lot of people may not realize that we, with the Apollo program, actually slammed in one of the stages or one of the smaller stages of the Saturn rockets into the moon to test what they called the ALSEP experiment and some of the seismometers on the surface of the moon. But I remember back in 2009, here's a great one. There was a rocket, and we interviewed the gentleman who ran the project. It was called the L-Cross mission. And what is that? They sent the booster rocket intentionally to slam it into the moon in the far southern part of the moon that is thought to have ice. And remember I mentioned on a show before that the coldest place of the solar system is not out by Neptune. It's not out by where the James Webb is. It's on the, the lunar surface at the South Pole. So simply they were going to slam this rocket booster into the moon and try to kick up whatever dust or frost was there. So we spent the entire night with a TV station out here getting ready for countdown of impact, and we were looking at the area. But guess what? Even in our puny telescope, we couldn't see the impact, but a spacecraft did see it, and it did indeed kick up some ice. So Elon Musk booster rocket is going to slam into the moon, but hopefully we're not going to have too many things junk up the moon, right, Frank? <laughs> hopefully not. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-WABC. Those of you that are on hold, we're going to make an effort to get to you. There are three open lines if you want to get in to talk to Dr. Sky. 800-848-9222. If you're looking up at the stars, you've got company. Frank Morano and Steve Cates for the rest of the hour. Straight ahead. WABC. Giving it to you straight. One area of our lives that often gets neglected is our sex life. Everyone wants better sex and, frankly, just more of it. Check out AdamandEve.com. They're the leaders in improving their sex life by offering products to intrigue you and your partner. And they've been at it for 50 years, so they know a thing or two. They also have great deals. Right now, you'll get 50% off almost any one item and 10 free gifts, including discreet free shipping for your privacy. Now that's a great deal, especially for Valentine's Day. All you need is this offer code, WABC at checkout. That's offer code WABC to get the 50% off free gifts and free shipping. You must have this offer code. Remember, offer code WABC. Have better and more sex when you use offer code WABC at adamandeve.com. 
Hey, folks, sit here. 40 days up to 40 pounds. Say it with me. 40 days up to 40 pounds with NJ Diet. It only takes 40 days to lose 20 to 40 plus pounds. That's my guy, Arthur Turovitz. Since NJ Diet is a contractually guaranteed money back program, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. NJ Diet is 100% tailored to you by using bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your hair, saliva, and blood work. Then, NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen. going to help you keep the weight off for the rest of your life. 40 days up to 40 pounds can be a real thing, unlike other weight loss systems. NJ Diet is all natural. No shots, no hormones, no prepackaged foods, and no surgery. With offices throughout the tri-state area or from home with live online video consultations. Start your new year off right and call NJ Diet today, 855-5NJ-DIET, or go to njdiet.com. That's njdiet.com, 40 days, up to 40 pounds with NJ Diet. Paid not attorney spokesperson. RDP Law Group with principal office in Washington, D.C. is responsible for the content of this ad. If you or a loved one is using or used a sleep device, listen closely. Philips brand CPAP, BiPAP, and APAP breathing sleep devices may cause respiratory failure, kidney, lung, liver injuries, blood, lymph node, or thyroid cancer. That's right. These machines have been recalled due to the toxic foam in these devices breaking down into black particles and gas that can be inhaled or swallowed by a CPAP user. Call 800-660-2734 now. As you may be entitled to significant financial compensation. Call our special toll-free number now to see if you qualify. If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with lung, kidney, or liver cancer, call 800-660-2734 now. The call is free and phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-660-2734. If you or a loved one used a Philips CPAP device, you may be entitled to significant financial compensation. Call 800-660-2734. 800-660-2734. 800-660-2734. Listen to Rudy Giuliani every weekday at 3.55 p.m. For the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts. Rudy gives his insightful, most candid, and important final thought of the day on topics affecting our community, our nation, and you. The Mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts. Weekdays at 3.55 p.m. on 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He's an expert on all things space. And if you want to check out his blog, you can go to KTAR.com. A world of interesting information on there. You have questions, we're going to answer them. Or Steve, more appropriately, is going to answer them. 800-848-9222. Steve, this might be a little unfair for me to throw at you. But on Twitter... There are now multiple reports of an extremely loud explosion 
and that's been heard in New Orleans over the last hour and a half or so. Fire crews have been dispatched to investigate. Nothing is terribly evident yet, but everyone is saying it was very loud. It was apparently heard across most of the city. It's been tweeted about by people like uh, Van Applegate, who's uh, an Emmy-winning photojournalist. And there's a lot of speculation that this could have been a meteor somewhere off the coast. Um, What is the likelihood, do you think, that this actually could be? A meteor. Other people, are, by the way, are speculating it could be aliens. But uh, let's start with the meteor hypothesis first. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if no one sees fires around the you know area or something burning at sea, it's more than likely that that could indeed be one of the shock waves from an incoming meteor. And again, we go back to the most livid example back in 2013 was Chelyabinsk, the one that happened in Russia. That was 66 feet across, and all the people that went to hospitals, it was not because the asteroid body actually smashed into the buildings. It was the shockwave. So that explosion, and it was very early, we're not sure, but until we are, one of the probabilities could indeed be a small or medium-sized asteroid-type body like a meteor exploding over the Gulf. All right, 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello there, Don. Hi, uh, Dr. Sky. Question, um, with all the exploration we're doing on Mars, we've never attempted to land on either of the two moons, Deimos and Phobos. Just curious why not. Well, it's interesting. I I don't really have a good answer as to why not. I mean, they're fascinating little moons. And just a little bit of a back history on that, Don, they were discovered actually where the vice president lives at the Naval Observatory. Back in 1877, a gentleman named Asaph Hall was sitting there in a murky night in the summer, I believe, of 1877, in the fog and the humidity. And he got to see Mars when it came really close to the Earth. And these two objects, named for the god, the god's chariot horses, panic and fear, Deimos and Phobos, I would guess the answer is that they're so small and they just orbit so fast. But it's very unusual. Think about this, folks. This particular little object, the Deimos, these objects, Deimos and Phobos, this is really bizarre, Don. I don't know if you've ever heard this. But in, John, uh, in Gulliver's Travels, I think it was Jonathan Swift that wrote it. I'm not a scholar in the English uh, literature. But it's reported that the Lilliputians that were supposed to occupy the, the world, they made a discovery in their telescope long before they were actually ever seen by Asaph Hall. And he described in the book, in the fictional book, the size and rotation times of those two objects. Hmm. Hopefully one day we'll land on both of those objects to find out. But they're so strange because one day... Don, those two satellites, Phobos more likely, will cascade and orbit and crash into the planet itself because, in my opinion, they're two weird objects, and some people have even speculated that they were placed there by <clears throat> other intelligence. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, speaking of that, one one listener emailed me a uh, a question, and I said that if time permitted, I would uh, try and ask uh, I would ask you about it. But uh, do you give any credence to the claims of people who say that they might have been abducted by space uh, aliens or have come into contact with extraterrestrials or that maybe even the extraterrestrials were responsible for building the Egyptian pyramids or Inca fortresses? Yes, Frank, I got to go to this one, and and this is very interesting. The abduction situations I have a little bit more, you know, believability in. and, And again, I say this from ignorance in a way, not arrogance. I was friends with a woman named Betty Hill. Oh, yeah, we've covered her case quite a bit on this show. I knew her. I went to her home when she was alive, God rest her soul, many, many times, interviewed her on shows that I did in college. 
And I was kind of a disbeliever until I went there and really read the books and read the stories about under deep hypnosis. They both tell the same story. Her husband passed away, obviously, soon after. But the point is, the most prolific one is a gentleman that I know very well is Travis Walton. Mm. And uh, his story, I mean, is, is so amazing. The movie Fire in the Sky with D.B. Sweeney, just literally, folks, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's more of an adult movie at the very end because, not X-rated, but it's adult because, Frank, what they show, without spoiling the movie for people, Travis Walton's description of the aliens, of what they do to him, and they show that in the movie as the end of that movie. That was one of the spookiest things. But I believe that Travis had something happen to him. So I'm on board with that possibility because I, I really don't know. But I always want to learn to try to seek out knowledge and be an open mind. Let me ask you this. As somebody that spends a lot of time looking at the stars, studying the stars, staring at constellations, my brother-in-law is the world's biggest astrology nut. I'm curious, do you lend any credence to the world of astrology, and can we tell about anything that, maybe not that will happen in the future, but anything sure. about ourselves or about certain characteristics of people that have certain astrological profiles? I'm not an active participant in astrology, but i got to also be fair to astrology. That was one of the things that people studied a long time ago, and some of the astrology that was done led to the discoveries in astronomy. But if, as far as me reading a horoscope in a newspaper... I would not necessarily go that route. I mean, in my opinion, I might, would rather maybe bet $100 on a sporting event before I'd probably believe that something is going to happen to me through the chain of things. But here's where I'm still an open mind, Frank. More and more people are coming to the conclusion, and I know this you know, without knowing a lot about it, that quantum physics is still something that's so bizarre. So what we think we know, we probably don't. And some have even speculated, and that's why I'm an open mind on this, that instead of seeing three or four dimensions in this universe, there may be upwards of 22. And there's a very complicated topic called Kalabayao manifolds. Sounds like something in a car engine, like a manifold, but it's not. It's the theoretical idea that there's probably more spatial dimensions than our minds can even comprehend. And wouldn't this be a beautiful thing for anyone? We've all suffered loss of loved ones. That maybe those loved ones have transgressed to a dimensional plane that's actually closer than we think. And at least that's what keeps me happy on a day when I respect the loss of my mother and father, mm. that I don't want to think that they're, you know, some far, far, far away place. Maybe it's all in the quantum soup. So anything's open. And I think it's amazing to just as we listen and learn more about what's going on in quantum mechanics, even Einstein, who was the great mind of his time, and even Stephen Hawking, Einstein still said that there's things in space like dark energy and dark matter. He referred to dark matter, which he didn't know what was dark matter, as some spooky action at a distance. So the old, what I'm saying in conclusion is there's so much more to learn, and the quantum world is so fascinating. That is for sure. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here before we run out of time. Tony is in Westwood. Hello, Tony. Hey, guys. Great show. Uh, question, Thanks. Two questions. Does the spin rate of an asteroid, could it be fast enough to create a gravitational field? on the asteroid. And number two, as the asteroid is traveling through space, could be for millions of years, is there anything that affects the speed, like solar wind, gravitational field, and have we noticed a reduction in speed in any of those asteroids? Thanks. Well, it's a very interesting series of questions. Yes, that spin rate, it generates its own little gravity. But if you were on an asteroid, 
it'd be so weak that if you and I and Frank decided in our spacesuits to jump off one of these little things, we'd probably go back out into space and not return. But there's something that happens with asteroids, and particularly asteroids indeed. The problematic thing is when these things are headed toward the Earth, there's a factor that science and math really can't guarantee, and it's a simple thing called the Yarkovsky effect. I said simple thing. What's that? The independent heating on an amorphous subject, like a rough, it's not a perfectly round sphere. It's just a rough thing, like a chunk of whatever, like a piece of coal. The interdifferential heating that's coming onto areas of that asteroid from the sun caused the asteroid to do its own thing by the heating. So it's also something we have to consider when we're trying to understand whether an asteroid would come to the Earth at an exact date and time. As we close off, Frank, just remember the asteroid Apophis, which is supposed to pass the Earth in 2029. It's supposed to pass us, and at that time, maybe we'll do a live show, God bless us all, where you can actually see that asteroid trekking across the sky, mm. and it should be bright enough, without getting people to tell them the wrong thing, bright enough in a dark location that you'd actually see it moving across the sky in real time. But if it comes back again, which it will in 2037, if it goes through this gravity keyhole in 2029, it could offset the asteroid, 